Our reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What do you want out of life? Many of us would say we want pretty similar things. We want well-being and flourishing. We want deep, loving intimacy with others. We want goodness and beauty and happiness and joy. But a lot of times, that's not what we get out of life, is it? Especially in times like these that are filled with such loneliness and sickness and pain and fear and economic hardship and anxiety and depression and, and de death even. In times like these, a lot of times what we want out of life is we just want out of life. Stop the world. I want to get off. And even when things are going reasonably well, you know that our experience in this world is full of suffering. And it doesn't matter who you are. You are going to get sick. You are going to lose a loved one. You are going to experience evil in this world. And you are going to die. And on top of that, it seems like there's something about our life in this world in which our actual experience never lives up to the longings of our heart, does it? There's always the tang of emptiness and unfulfilled desire. So especially you see that when we actually get something we thought we really, really wanted. When we get that thing, we thought, oh, if I could only have this in my life, then I would finally, finally be happy. And whenever we grab a hold of that thing, it just never satisfies, does it? And so as a result, um, you know, we develop all kinds of escape strategies, things like uh, alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography, or shopping, or TV, internet, social media, exercise, work, whatever it might be for you. Ways of escaping, even if it's just for a moment, the inevitable disappointment of life. The Apostle Paul in this passage actually describes it as futility. He says that creation, that means the world, was subjected to futility. And as a result, we groan in this world. What a poignant way of describing our experience in life. We groan under the weight of all the suffering and, and, and um, futility of life in this world. 
So as a result, it would be easy for us to think that, you know, our real struggle in life is with suffering. And that's a really honest answer. That's an honest response. But what if our real struggle in this world was with something else, something deeper? This passage that we just read is inviting us to consider the possibility that our real struggle in this world isn't with suffering, it's with hope. It's with hope. Now, what does that mean? We are in a series on the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. And it's Easter. So this morning, we're talking about renewal, but especially we're talking about the hope of renewal. Because here's the thing. If you can transform your understanding of hope, it will transform your experience of suffering. If you can transform your understanding of hope, it'll transform your experience of suffering. How? The Apostle Paul in this passage is talking about a very specific hope. Let's learn three things about this hope. We're going to see the revelation of hope, the practice of hope, and the assurance of hope. All right? The revelation the practice, and the assurance of hope. First, the revelation of hope. One of the great promises of the Bible is that the physical resurrection of Jesus is a preview of something that one day will happen to all of us. And Paul, in this passage, talks about this in a number of places. In verse 18, he talks about the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. Um, especially you see it in verse 23, where he says that we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Paul is highlighting the, the biblical promise, and you see it all through the Bible, that one day human beings are going to receive the glory of a resurrected, renewed, material body. But that's not all. If you look at verses 19 through 21, Paul says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, that's a mouthful, but here's what Paul is saying. You notice that he says creation is waiting for our resurrection. Why? In fact, he says it's waiting eagerly. That means creation itself is standing on tiptoe. It's craning its neck, waiting for the redemption, the resurrection of human beings. But why? Because creation itself will one day be set free from its own bondage to corruption and will experience a resurrection itself. In other words, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only a preview of something that one day is going to happen to us, it's a preview of something that one day is going to happen to the whole universe. In other words, the material renewal of humanity is like a spark that ignites the material renewal of the whole cosmos you realize there is no other religion, worldview, philosophy, scientific theory, or any other approach to life that says anything like this. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, in fact, if I could just be a little bit cheeky, do you know what, um, what uh, religious fundamentalists and secular atheists have in common? They both believe the same thing about the end of the world, the annihilation of creation. So for instance, if we look once again at verse 19, Paul says that creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, sidebar, when Paul talks about the sons of God, he's not talking about gender here. In the ancient world, the firstborn son was the one who received the bulk 
of the inheritance. So in the ancient world, sonship was a legal status of inheritance. Paul is saying that God is uh, offering, he's making the offer of participation in a renewed material world. He's making that offer available to anybody who uh, is willing to receive it, it of uh, both genders, okay? That's what he means by this. But if we go back to our verse, what Paul literally says is that creation is waiting with eager longing for the apocalypse of the sons of God. That apocalypse is the word that he literally uses there. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse, what do we think? We think destruction. We think annihilation. We, th we think of some kind of dystopian, scorched earth, Mad Max future. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. Apocalypse does not mean destroy. It means reveal. That means that, um, in other words, that God's vision is not destroying the world and carrying us away to heaven. God's vision is he's renewing the world by bringing heaven to us. That is a very different vision of the end of the world, not end in the sense of destruction, but end in the sense of purpose, God's purposes for the world. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Do you realize this is the fulfillment of everything we want most out of the world? It's the fulfillment of it. Because think about our experience in this world, the, um, the suffering, the disappointment. Or as Paul puts it in this passage, he says, we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Life in this world is suffering. But notice something about our suffering. We don't just experience it as painful. We experience suffering as wrong. Suffering feels unjust to us. In fact, this is one of the main reasons that many people doubt the existence of a loving, powerful creator, all of the unjust suffering in the world. So for instance, C.S. Lewis was one of the great Christian writers of the 20th century. He was an atheist for much of his adult life. And one of the main reasons was because of all the unjust suffering in the world. But that ended up being one of the things that led him to faith in God. And here's how he put it. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. You know, many people scoff at the idea of faith in God. Some even call it magical thinking. But most people in the world cling passionately to the idea of justice. And especially we cling to the idea that this world must be put right. Now, where did we get this idea? C.S. Lewis would suggest, and I would suggest as well, that while science is a wonderful thing, it can describe our material universe. Science nonetheless cannot fully explain our material universe. That, in fact, a, a better way of explaining our experience in this world is that it's like a fairy tale. And I understand at this point, you know, maybe the penalty flag comes out. Some people cry out, wait a minute, magical thinking, penalty on the field. But let's think about this for a minute. What if this world really was once a place of perfect harmony and glory, but because of human pride and selfishness and greed, the world has fallen under a curse, and now everything is falling apart. 
The world was full of glory, but now the glory is lost, um, but not completely. There's still like a memory trace of this glory still remaining in the world. Uh, the latest Pixar film, by the way, is a wonderful example of this. It's called Onward, and I am not going to spoil it for you. But just the setting of the movie at the very beginning, um, it tells us that in times of old, the world was full of wonder and magic. So you see unicorns flying through the air and, and wizards doing all kinds of magic. But then it says, but then people forgot. The world became modern. And as a result, now people see the magic. It's just a silly old myth, a silly old legend. Nobody believes in that stuff anymore. And so now in the movie, you see unicorns rummaging in trash cans. You see centaurs who don't realize that they can run 70 miles an hour. Or you see pixies who have no idea that they can fly. They live in a disenchanted world. Disenchantment is a word that sociologists use to describe our modern secular world. It means that we live in a world that is emptied of God. It's, it's disenchanted. But friends, a disenchanted world cannot possibly explain our unfulfilled desires. And especially it can't explain our passionate insistence that this world must be put right. As I say frequently, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be, and yet we know it's not. You know, if this world really is nothing more than the result of a mindless, unguided, natural process, then we ought to feel perfectly at home in this world, and, but we don't. Friends, the reason that we groan in this world is because we instinctively remember the glory for which we and the whole world was once created. And we long to see that glory restored. The promise of the resurrection is that one day it's going to happen. So I would suggest that if we're willing to uh, allow this idea to breathe in our hearts, that, that this is really what we want out of life, a, a, a material embodied hope. And that our escape strategies are really just ways of numbing the pain in our lives, of not having what we really want, that material embodied hope. So for instance, we are all so grateful right now for the technology that is allowing us to stay connected with one another in a time of social distancing. But I'm also willing to bet that every single one of us is like hyper aware of just how unfulfilling virtual reality really is. Because what we really want out of life is not a screen. It's, it's embracing. It's feasting. It's hugging. It's dancing. It's leaping. It's kissing. We want a material embodied hope. And the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that offers that hope to us. Friends, apocalypse does not mean destroy. It means reveal. In other words, one day the, the curtain isn't coming down on creation. It's going up. There is no other hope in the world on offer like this hope. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen the revelation of hope. But secondly, let's look at the practice of hope. Specifically, I want to offer you two ways that this hope of the resurrection um, affects and helps us in our lives in incredibly practical ways. And the first one is this. The hope of the resurrection means that we can fight for the good of this world. If the ultimate destiny of, of the whole cosmos is not destruction, but a glorious renewal, then Christians of all people have the greatest possible motivation to work for the good of this world. And if you look at the history of the early church, you see this pretty clearly. Now, we do need to say that uh, Christians have been some of the worst 
perpetrators of evil and injustice throughout history. There's no denying that. But when you look at the early church, you see something incredible. For instance, you know, right now, with everything we're going through, do you feel grateful for the courage and the compassion that people are displaying to one another? I do. We're grateful for the healthcare professionals, for the institutions and nonprofits that provide uh, food and clothing and shelter. We're grateful even for the kindness of our neighbors. You know, in our world, we value things like compassion and mercy, but why do we value those things in our world? The reason is because of Christianity's impact in this world. So if you look at the early church, did you know the early Christians, the first Christians were the ones that started the first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first welfare systems? And maybe even more relevant for us, in the year 260, there was a series of plagues that ravaged the ancient world. At one point, as many as 5,000 people were dying every single day. Uh, at that time, many people were doing whatever they could in order to protect themselves. So here's how one historian described it. He said, at the first onset of the disease, they, that's the citizens of the city, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avoid the spread of the fatal disease. Now that's how the citizens of the city responded. But how did the Christians respond? The same historian says this, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Friends, the hope of the resurrection means that we can fight for the good of this world. But secondly, the hope of the resurrection means that, that we can face the hardness of life. And, and here's what I mean about that. Uh, if you look at verse 18, notice that Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that word consider is an accounting word. What Paul is saying is when I take my sufferings in this world and, and I also take the hope of glory and I put those things in the balance, the glory weighs so much. In fact, the word glory in the Bible literally means heaviness or weight. He says, when I compare those things, the glory weighs so much that the suffering just flies up and out of the scales. And understand something, Paul understood what suffering was. The man was beaten, flogged, jailed. He was, um, he was uh, persecuted. He was attacked. He starved. He was naked. In fact, he was even attacked by wild beasts sometimes. He knew what it meant to suffer. And yet the hope of the resurrection was so powerful in his life that he was able to face all of the hardships and the groanings and the sufferings of this world it didn't take away his suffering. It did transform his experience of suffering. And it can do the same thing for us. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at verse 23, Paul says, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. But then right after that, he says, um, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, we're waiting for a glorious renewal of our bodies in the world. But while we're waiting, he says, we do it with patience and eagerness. In other words, there should be a patience about our eagerness and an eagerness about our patience. So think about this. If our waiting is all patience, but there's no eagerness, then, then it moves us into the direction of 
apathy and complacency and despair. We say, nothing's ever going to change. Why bother? I give up. But if our waiting is all eagerness and no patience, that moves us in the direction of naive pride and triumphalism because we say, well, things aren't changing fast enough. We got to take control. We got to make the world the place we know it ought to be. We have the power to do it. But Paul is saying, if we wait with both eager patience and patient eagerness, that means that on the one hand, we're never naive about the world, but on the other hand, we never give up on the world. The hope of the resurrection transforms our understanding of hope, and it transforms our experience of suffering in this world. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the revelation of hope. We've talked about the practice of hope. But lastly, let's take a look at the assurance of hope, because here's the real challenge for us. How can we know that this hope is real? Well, here's how. If we look once again at verse 23, Paul says that we ourselves, he's talking about Christians who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is saying that Christians have the first fruits of the spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, first fruits is a farming word. Uh, when the first crops come up out of the ground during a harvest, that first portion that comes out is called the first fruits. Now, first fruits is two things. First, first fruits is a, is a preview of the harvest, but first fruits is also a promise of more to come. Because understand, it's just a little bit that comes out. It's, it's not the whole harvest. You certainly are not going to feed a whole village on the first fruits, but it is real you can take a bite out of it. In other words, first fruits is both a preview and a promise of a future reality that makes a difference in our present reality. First fruits is a preview and a promise of a future reality that makes a difference in our present reality. Did you know that the Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection? That means that Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, is both a preview and a promise of something that will happen to us and eventually happen to the whole world. When Paul talks about the first fruits of the Spirit, he's saying that the Holy Spirit takes the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection and makes it real in our hearts. Now, do you realize what that does for us? It connects our future reality to our present reality so that we're standing in the overlap of those two things. You could think of it like this. Imagine you're standing on a beach and you're looking out over a vast ocean. And as you're standing there, you're on the beach. The water's out in front of you. You're not a part of the water. But then imagine that a wave rolls in and it washes gently over your feet. Now, here's the question. Are you standing on the beach or are you standing in the water? Both. You're standing in the overlap between those two things. When Paul talks about the first fruits of the Christian, he's saying that the Holy Spirit takes the first fruits of Jesus's resurrection and he makes it like a wave from the future that comes and invades our present reality right now. So that even while we're standing in the midst of all the groaning and the suffering of life in this world, that future reality comes and it transforms our experience of suffering. It doesn't take away the suffering. It does transform our experience of the suffering. So for instance, I grew up in Southern California, which means uh, that I never experienced all of the seasons. Then when I moved to New York, um, I experienced seasons I had never experienced before, especially winter. I remember that first winter, the snow, the cold, the freezing rain, the biting wind. 
You know, winter is hard. But then I remember one morning, I walked out of my front door and I saw these little green buds on the trees. Now, because I grew up in Southern California, I had never seen anything like that. I didn't know what this means. I barely even noticed it. Can you imagine my surprise a couple of weeks later when I walked out my front door and it seemed like overnight those buds had exploded into the most amazing blossoms of pink and purple and white. I was blown away. I, I was amazed. I'd never seen anything like that before. Now, fast forward one year. <laughs> it's winter again. The, the bitter cold, the freezing rain, the biting wind. But then one morning I walk out my front door and I see those little green buds on the trees. Do you understand? Do you realize what the sight of that would have done to my experience of winter? It didn't change my circumstances. You know, it was still cold, still frosty. You know, there might even be another blizzard coming or two. But, but it did change my experience of winter because I saw the buds on the trees. I knew that spring was coming. It gave me hope. Friends, what do you think enabled those first Christians to care for the sick and the dying the way they did? It was the hope of the resurrection. What do you think enabled them to, um, to suffer and even to give their lives themselves? It was the hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus has physically risen from the dead, that is an assurance for us that even in the midst of our groaning and our suffering in this world, there is a coming glory. It's coming into this world and it is going to transform our world of suffering and groaning into a world of such glory and beauty and joy and harmony that we cannot now possibly begin to imagine it. So if you're here this morning joining us online and maybe you're exploring faith and spirituality, I would invite you to ask yourself a question this morning. And the question is, is escaping this world really my deepest hope? Is that what I really want out of life? Because if it is, then there are all kinds of things in this world that offer to give it to you from Hinduism to Buddhism to religious fundamentalism to secular atheism. You know, Elon Musk has a spaceship waiting for you right now. But if you're at all open to the possibility that what we really want out of this world is a material embodied hope, then I would encourage you to explore the historical evidence for the only thing in the world that can give it to you, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of really great resources available to you if you want to explore the historical evidence for the resurrection. It is not just a myth. Did you know there's really good evidence for it? Let me give you just a few very easy ones. First, if you want to go to undeceptions.com, and listen to their most recent podcast episode. It's called Easter Myths. Uh, they walk through in about 44 minutes a lot of the evidence for the resurrection. The host, John Dixon, is not just a Christian. He's actually a world-class historian in Sydney, Australia. Um, but secondly, if you want to go a little bit deeper, then you can read a book by Professor N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. N.T. Wright is one of the most respected biblical scholars in the world today. He's an excellent historian, and he's also an expert in the resurrection, but he will lead you through the evidence for the resurrection in a wonderful way. And he's also a very good writer, and it's not too big a book. Thirdly, if you want, I would invite you to join us tomorrow at 5 p.m. I'm going to host a Facebook Live question and answer session. So if you just go to Facebook and you go to Central West End Church, find our Facebook page, 5 p.m. tomorrow, um, I'm going to host a Q&A. You can ask me any question you want, but we would love to give you opportunities to explore the evidence for the resurrection. But if you are a Christian this morning, 
then I want to encourage you that we can fight for the good of this world. And we can do so because the hope of the resurrection enables us to face the hardness of life. You see, the resurrection, it, it transforms our understanding of hope and that transforms our experience of suffering in this world. And it, it enables us to fight for the good of the world and to face the hardness of life with eager patience and with patient eagerness. You know, we are living in incredibly difficult times right now. Many of you are hurting. You're lonely, you're, um, you're, you're anxious, you're afraid, you're depressed, you're struggling with economic hardship, maybe you're addicted, maybe you're afflicted with something else. There are all kinds of things going on in your life. I wanna encourage you this morning that if you can transform your understanding of hope, it'll transform your experience of suffering in the world. Cling to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened, it's real, and it's available to you right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to earth, not just to die for us, but also to rise from the dead for us, to give us a glorious assurance of hope that not only one day will we be given materially renewed bodies, but that one day you are going to materially renew the whole universe. Father, help us to embrace that hope. I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, you would make that hope more and more real to us and that you would enable all of us, Father, to work for the good of this world and to face the hardness of life and to do so because we know the glorious hope of the resurrection. Father, I pray especially for those who are discouraged or um, despairing this morning, for those who are lonely or hurting or afraid or depressed or anxious or sick, I pray that you would give your special comfort to them and that you would make the hope of your resurrection even more real in their hearts. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.